Okay. Well, good morning. Good to see you. <clears throat> and um, let's get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning keenly aware of your great mercy toward us. And with gratitude, we, we cry out to you to reveal yourself to us today and bless the gathering of your people. <clears throat> we pray, O oh Lord, that you would stir in us by your spirit and show us the things that we need to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is um, continuing on in lessons that I've learned in, the 50, in my 50 years of ministry. Um, today we're talking about the... Uh, um, how the Christian life is Trinitarian. Uh, I went to seminary and I learned about the Trinity. I learned about the history of the doctrine of the Trinity and how the early church came to the conclusion that God had to be Trinitarian and the very interesting process and struggles of the thinking that, you know, and how it's based on Scripture. I learned how to show it from Scripture and and uh, all the different passages. Um, and I've always been Trinitarian. However, I realized that I was Trinitarian in my theology, but not really in the practical way that I looked at my life and the Christian and the church. Um, and someone, you know, like 20 years ago, or a little bit more, 25 years ago, shared with me the concept that uh, the Christian life and the church life ought to be Trinitarian, and it really opened my eyes. The, um, my view of things had been largely Unitarian, that is, just seeing God as one, um, because I had been reacting to two different forms of practical Unitarianism. That is, when a group of Christians, they believe in the Trinity, in their theology, but they put all the emphasis on one of the three persons of the Trinity so that they're practically Unitarian. I don't mean that they're almost Unitarian. I mean, in practice, they're Unitarian. And when I grew up in a youth group, it was so Jesus-focused, which I think was probably pretty common to the Jesus movement, very Jesus-focused. We, we didn't even have Old Testaments. You know, we all had New Testaments, and that's all we studied. And uh, we have friends you know, who grew up at the same time with us, who haven't been in Reformed churches, uh, you know, very much since, and they still don't know a lot of the Old Testament stories because they're still just completely focused on Jesus. And uh, and so, um, and then, um, so there was a emphasis on our knowledge of, that our relationship with Christ our, 
our familiarity with God, you know, the fact that he was our friend, um, that was very strong. But then I read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul and bang, in my mind, you know, you realize there's another side to this. There's, you know, the holy God, the creator. And, uh, and so really, I sort of reacted to the Jesus... Um, emphasis and went in the other direction but there's also another emphasis and that was um, in the charismatic movement and I never was part of the charismatic movement but I got close enough to it that I could see you know and feel and taste a little bit what was going on there and that movement tended to be very spirit centered and um there was joy and exuberance. There was demonstrations of power. There was God speaking directly to you. And so reacting to those two movements, I had realized that I had become sort of Unitarian towards God the Father. And, you know, early in my ministry, my focus was largely on you know, God as our creator, as our judge, as our lawgiver, as our king, as the one on the throne. And, um, and you know, that's really the way Jesus is large. I mean, that's the way God is largely revealed in the Old Testament. Very little about <clears throat> the Trinity in the Old Testament, if anything. Um, you know, maybe little indications here or there, but no one would have ever formed the doctrine of the Trinity from the Old Testament if, the, if Jesus hadn't come, right? <clears throat> and, um, and so that was my orientation. And when, this, when I realized this, then I preached a 12-week series on the Holy Spirit, and then I preached a whole year on the life of Jesus. And uh, those really opened up for me this whole thing that that uh, the only way to really be have a have a balanced and the right perspective on your life and on the church is to be trinitarian in the way that you think about those things um, so I, I want to go through a little bit of um, how these three things fit together and then that is the perspective of the Father, perspective of the Son, and the perspective of the Spirit. Not that they have different perspectives, but we have different perspectives when we think about each one. Um, and then I want to open it up to um, you know, what each one brings to the picture um, as we look at our lives and as we look at the life of the church. And that's what we'll do together. Okay, <clears throat> so in the Old Testament, one of the great revelations of the Old Testament was the revelation of human failure. It starts almost at the beginning with man falling into sin. Um, and that continues. It's over and over and over again in the Old Testament. God commands, man tries, but man fails. And uh, and then there's a promise 
of one who is to come. Kept, keep pointing forward to this one who is going to come. And, uh, and of course, in Christ, um, in, the, in the aftermath of all the human failures that we see in the Old Testament, Jesus steps up to the plate and, and he succeeds where man has failed. Um, and and uh, he comes as the Messiah, the Christ. And that those are, you know, Messiah, Hebrew, Christ from Christos, Greek, are words in that language that just mean anointed one, the anointed one. And um, you know, kings in the Old Testament, kings and priests were anointed for their calling as you know, part of their ordination for that, to fulfill that calling. Um, so what's so different about this anointed one? You know, all these, there's lots of anointed ones in the Old Testament. But what's so different about Jesus? Um, there's one thing that Jesus uh, didn't have that all the other anointed ones in the, in the Bible have. Jesus was never anointed with oil. He got baptized with water, but water is never used for anointing in the Bible. Anointing is with oil. And unlike all the priests and the kings in the Bible, Jesus never got anointed with oil. So why is Jesus referred to as the anointed one? Well, the answer is found in Acts chapter 10, 37 and 38, where it says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So this tells us how Jesus was anointed. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit, not with oil. The oil symbolized the Holy Spirit in all these other cases, with the priests and the kings, God's Holy Spirit coming upon them. But in the case of Jesus, it wasn't just a symbolic thing. It was the reality. The Holy Spirit came upon him. And that's what happened at his baptism when the Holy Spirit came down upon him in the form of a dove in Luke 3. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And what happens as soon as that anointing takes place? In Luke 4, Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then after his temptation, it says, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So once Jesus anointing, anointed with the Holy Spirit... You know, everything he does is by the Holy Spirit. And that's made clear for us. And then he comes to the synagogue, remember? And he gets up in the synagogue that day and to read the scroll of Isaiah. And he unrolls it and he reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. First words that come out of his mouth. This is what is we refer to as the anointing of Jesus. This is why he was the Messiah. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to 
proclaim liberty to the captives, and, and on. And that's Luke 4, 16 and 19. So, why is it significant that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and sent forth in the Spirit's power? Well, when Jesus began his ministry, he didn't do it by his own power as the Son of God. That, why? Because that would have done us little good in terms of fulfilling his commands of you know, how are we going to do this? We can't do this. We're not the Son of God. But you see, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and then he goes to heaven and he pours out upon us his Holy the same Spirit that came upon him and now we realize we have the same power that drove, that moved Jesus to be able to live this way and so it's not just us by ourselves saying we can never do what Jesus did. We're not Jesus. But we have the Holy Spirit. And so that's why this is so important. Um, and then, you know, so after he dies, we'll go into this a little bit more detail. Um, he is raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven. Ten days later, he pours out his Holy Spirit upon his church at Pentecost. And uh, we receive this power that he received at his baptism. And uh, this, of course, fulfills what the Old Testament prophecies were. The Old Testament didn't just prophesy that the Messiah would come but that the Holy Spirit would come. I will put my spirit on you, in you, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So this is how we can fulfill these things. This is how we can live the way that Jesus lived is because the Holy Spirit is given to us and poured out upon us at Pentecost. Um, but power for ministry and power for obedience, that's just one part of the Spirit's work in the believer. The Spirit is the one who takes hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. Who raises the dead, spiritually dead, to life and causes them to be born again. The Spirit of the Lord is the one who convicts us of sin and grants us repentance. The Spirit is the one who shows us Christ, who opens our eyes to who He is. Listen to what Jesus said the night before He died. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will take of mine and disclose it to you. He's the one that opens our eyes to the reality of everything Christ was and did and said. And then in 1526, when the Helper comes, He will bear witness of me. That's the purpose well, one of the main purposes of the Holy Spirit is to work in us to help us see Christ, the reality of Christ. So it's not just, you know, us like historians look reading a book and learning about a, a person, a remarkable person, but still a person who lived 2,000 years ago and, and being affected like, by it like we, if we read a biography of Abraham Lincoln or something. But the Spirit Himself is at work within us to 
move us and to open our eyes to the reality of Christ so that we can see him. And Christ is present with us through the Holy Spirit. You know, when Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he's not with us as he was with his disciples when he said that. He was there in body, even though it was a uh, resurrected body. He was there in body. He's not with us in body anymore. He's with us through the Spirit. The, the, the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit are so intertwined with each other that, that he can say, I'm with you. When it's the Spirit that's with us. Because it's the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit opens our eyes to the vast riches of our inheritance in Christ. And puts hope in our hearts as we look forward to the day when He returns. But the Holy Spirit is also the one through whom we have fellowship with the Father. He's the one that moves us. To cry, Abba, Father, as Galatians 4, 6 tells us. He's the one who testifies with our spirits that we are the children of God. It's the Holy Spirit who does that work in us. Who, who gives us that sense that God loves me. That God is with me. That God cares about me. That I'm His. I belong to Him and He belongs to me. Now there's a great deal that we knew about God and how to serve Him even before Jesus came. We knew that God was our Creator, that He had an absolute right to our worship and our obedience. We knew that God was our authority. We knew that God was our lawgiver. We knew that God was our judge. We knew that God was our disciplinarian and our tester. We knew that God was our sustainer and provider and the deliverer. But the coming of Christ in many things is adds so much to this and then the coming of the Spirit as well. Um, so really, historically, that's the way it happened, right? God revealed Himself as one, and mainly, you know, the Father, and then the Son was revealed, and then the Spirit was revealed. And each one of these is a significant um, new perspective on, on how God, who God is, and how He relates to us, and what He does for us. Um, Jesus, of course, comes as the fulfillment of who God is in human flesh. The revelation of God, as, as uh, it says in um, John, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And... He, he also opened our eyes to many other things, even things about the creation, for instance. Um, in the Old Testament, um, you know, God created the world, and then he said it was very good. And yet then there seems, in the law, it's almost like there's things that in the creation that aren't good. 
you know, there's unclean animals and there's things that you have to stay away from and and uh, the Gentiles are are you know to be very highly regarded of and but Jesus comes and he makes all that clear. He teaches us that you know that all things in creation are good. It's it's what's in our hearts that's the problem. Um, he taught us that everything that happens is for our good. That this is amazing, but that everything is ours. Not only is everything good, but everything is ours. God gave us everything. He didn't hold back anything. It's not just that he gives us a little slice of the pie. He's given us the whole pie. It's just that the reason it looks like we don't have everything is because we don't have everything in the way we'd like it, but we have everything in the way that it's best for us to have. And so Jesus reveals all these things in his coming. Um, and of course he, he teaches us about, you know, not only that God's our deliverer, but how he delivers us from the real problem, and that's our guilt before him. Um, and he teaches us how to live. He doesn't just give us a new set of ideas, but he shows us, and you know, I'll be preaching about this this morning. He lays down his life and then he says, now follow me and do what I've done. Um, so you can see in light of this story that that uh, if you leave out any of the three persons of the Trinity, then your life, you're looking at your life from a really um, uh, shallow perspective. That that uh, we have to be not only believing in the three members of the Trinity, but listening to each member's contribution, if you will, to the picture of God so that we can have um, the full richness of all that God has revealed himself as in, in the Bible. Let me first say that, ask if anybody has any questions or comments before we go through each of the persons of the Trinity and ask ourselves what kind of contribution does this one add to our picture of God? Any comments or questions? George. not understand the Trinity and when they and the Jews that accepted Christ as their Savior have this immense frame shift, don't they? Yeah. Where now they're and then they're baptized in the Holy Spirit and where did all this come from? I just try to put myself in their place it must have been a I mean we've been faithful Israel for hundreds of years God has worked with us and now we find out this is like an enormous revelation mm -hmm. that's 
Yeah. And of course, it's, you know, it's only by the, oh, the work of the Holy Spirit that anyone gets any of this, right? But, uh, and it's all there in the Old Testament. That's part of the thing that God did to help them. You know, it's not like this is, you never would have thought this. But every single thing that happened, you can point back to the Old Testament and say, see, this is the fulfillment of Scripture. Things that the Jews didn't get. They didn't really make sense. You know, like when Jesus says, uh, you know, brings that question about Psalm 122, is it? That where he says, the Lord said to my Lord, and he says, you know, how does David speak to his, the, his, it's his son and yet it's his Lord? How does that work? And they don't have any explanation. They didn't, you know, they, they, there's a lot of things in there they didn't understand. But now, of course, it all makes sense. So in some ways, it's turning on a light and all these things that they already have to struggle with suddenly make sense. So it's not just that they were in the dark. Go ahead. Yep. Yep. Joe. Just uh, a note what George was saying. Um, I guess the, the question of where did that come from is uh, something I guess you have to point out my God to answer. But the observation I had is that there is a contrast between that level of revelation when in scriptures, the New Testament, when Jesus came, and, you know, similar revelations that people have had throughout the ages where a person comes forward and says, hey, God told me this new thing. You know, whether it's, you know, starting your religions, whether it's, you know, I have no authority. In all those cases, it's just been a person saying, you know, I had a dream, I got a vision, whatever, and they come forward. When Jesus came, the magnitude of the events around that matched the magnitude of the revelation. In other words, it wasn't just some guy coming forward saying, it's like, hey, God told me this you know, extraordinary thing. Like the prophets of the Old Testament, pretty much everything that they revealed was already revealed many times before. They were just repeating many ways the same lines. So some guy comes out of the desert, a prophet, and he says the same things that Jesus proposed. That's not, you know, the presentation matches the message. When somebody comes forward and says, here's this new revelation of the Trinity, of grace, of the sacrifice of the cross, and there's legions of angels, there's miracles, there's people rising from the dead, there's the virgin birth. There's, you know, the wise men coming from on far. There's this extraordinary series of events. There's the apostles having the spirit poured out. It's just, you know, this is extraordinary. This is something where people should ask, where did this come from? You should be asking. And the thing is that the presentation, all right, this, this lights up. You know, the blind see, the lame walk, the, you know, people are rising from the dead. Um, you should be skeptical of any of these claims. And the problem that Jesus had is that they were focusing on the miracles of like, oh, now I can, you know, heal the wounded. This, this great, that's very focused on. But no, this is just a demonstration to match the magnitude of the message. This is a small thing. This is the, you know, small news, miracle, people were asking that. There's, there's a much bigger message, but this validates that. Yep. Um, so I thought that was something to keep in mind. Also, the reason we can come with extraordinary claims sort of line it up, so to speak. Good thoughts. 
Go ahead, Phil. They didn't get it until they got it. That's the way we all are. Me too. Yeah. Right. But when you do get it, you realize that the, the evidence was overwhelming. Yeah. And when the, the disciples you know, understood Jesus' message, right. it wasn't, oh, Jesus was really cryptic about that. You know? right. It was, oh, yeah, he was just kind of saying exactly this over right. and over again, right. demonstrating the miracles, right. you know, validated through every means necessary. And you realize the stubbornness was in here, not around me. Yeah, or the blindness, yep. Okay, anything else about that before we move on? Okay, then let's, uh, let's take each person of the Trinity. And I don't want to take one at a time. And the reason is because then if we run out of time, we're going to have just talked about one person of the Trinity. So I want to alternate. We're going to talk about God the Father, and then God the Son, and then God the Spirit. And we're gonna, I'm going to ask for one, you know, ask for ways that, that, that we see God better through this one member of the Trinity. And then we're going to go one at a time. So um, we'll do one for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Spirit. Then we'll go back and do another one for the Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay. So, um, now obviously I've already said a lot about these things, so you're, um, we have to come up with slightly more subtle things than the things I already mentioned. I don't want you to just repeat. This isn't a review of the class. This is, uh, you know, sort of brainstorming about ways, what, what do we see about God from the way that he's revealed as God the Father? And I don't mean just God, I'm talking about the person of God the Father, not his role as Father, but the person of God the Father. For instance, he's the creator. But what other things that, that uh, can we see that I didn't mention? Who can raise their hand? Tell us one. What if we were paying that close attention and they come up with something? <laughs> I won't scold you. I won't scold you. <laughs> okay, uncompromising. How about Jesus? God the Son. What do we learn about God from Jesus? Okay, there's two, and we're only supposed to do one. So I'm going to stop you there. But I will, I will take the two because you mentioned them. But he's relational. I really, and you know, if God is one, there's no concept of a relationship. You don't have a relationship with yourself. It takes two people to have a relationship. But when God the Son comes along, and he's talking about his father, and his father speaks out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Suddenly, this is relational, isn't it? So that's one thing that we learn from Jesus. Second of all, um, he, th- that uh, his sympathy, his compassion, because now God is already, you know, Psalm 103 is all about the compassion of God. But in Jesus... That, that's brought to a new level because he came and he lived here and he felt our curse 
And therefore, he is able to sympathize in a way that, that at least is much more meaningful to us because he's walked in our shoes. Okay, very good. Now the Spirit. George. Okay, conviction of sin. That, and that's something that happens inside of us. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one who is never said to be in heaven. Of course, no, I don't want to say that. In some of the visions of Revelation, the Holy Spirit is in heaven. But by and large, he's here on the earth and he's at work in the hearts of people. And so he's the one who invisibly works in us. And um, you said conviction of sin, right? Well, you, you, you know, experientially, we would never know that conviction of sin came from someone else. It feels like it's something that's happening to me, and it's mine. But the fact is, the Bible tells us this is a gift. This is something God gives us. He's the one that gives us conviction of sin. Look at the end of 2 Timothy 2. Okay, very good. The Father again. God the Father. What do we... Learn about God from God the Father. This might be wrong, but none of the others work with that. None of the others work with that. The Holy Spirit, the Jesus, they're all... Um, they, they all don't, they all in agreement with what goes on. So yes, um, but God is the one that I want to say orchestrates. It, it. plans it. <laughs> what? It plans it all. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. Yes. Yes. Now you know. <laughs> It is, it is awkward to delineate these things sometimes, but the main direction we're pointed to when it comes to the mastermind behind the whole thing is the Father, is the one who planned it all, who set it all up. Yes. And so that is, that's very much a part of the Old Testament, you know, that God's in control of history and making it unfold. He's the one who is, who, you know, says, you, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God was at work in these terrible circumstances. And not only that, but he's telling you what's going to happen thousands of years into the future. He's got it all in his hands, right? Okay, very good. Jesus, the, I mean, the Son of God. Okay, that's sort of like the second one that that uh, Jordan shared. Let me take another one. David. Kind of the other side of the coin, what was saying about this submissive to the Father. Okay, yeah, and and let me just broaden that a little bit and say that he's he gave us an example of. Everything we're supposed to be in, and uh, submission to the Father. That's why that's emphasized so much. That could have easily been hidden, and it wouldn't have really changed very much, except that we would have been left without Christ's example, knowing 
that he was constantly submitting to the Father and trusting and, and trusting himself Ian and trusting himself to the Father. Which is just what God calls us to do. First, this time first Peter, first Peter two. He entrusted himself. Okay, the spirit. Yes, Amy. Advocate or helper. Yes. And of course, Jesus is also the helper. He says, you know, when I, it's good for you that I go, because if I don't go, that I couldn't send you another helper. So it's not just, I mean, he was there as their, their helper, their rabbi, their discipler, their friend. And yet, there's a limit to how Jesus can be our friend. Because Jesus in the flesh can only be one place at one time. He didn't have 12 million disciples. He had 12 disciples. Nobody, can, nobody in the flesh can disciple 12 million people. But the Holy Spirit can. He can be the helper and the advocate for millions and billions of people. Very good. God the Father again. Invisible, yep. Invisible. Spiritual. The, maybe better way to describe this, you know, every manifestation was like vastly superior. He never just, you know, walked over and had a conversation. It was in a, a fiery cloud. Uh, right. You know, he showed his back and you know, blinds right. Abraham. That's right. Fighting the burning bush. That's right. His manifestations are there, physical, but they represent something that is vastly beyond us. But. That's, this is truer than you might even realize. Um, even those times when God manifests himself visibly, it's the spirit of God, not God himself. Jesus and the spirit are the way that God shows himself visibly to mankind. But he himself, no man can see. So it's, so it's the invisibility of God is very much focused on the Father. That is, the Father is the way we realize God is invisible, mainly. Very good. Okay, the Son. Did Moses see that? I'm sorry? What did Moses see when he was in the cleft of the rock? The Spirit. That's the glory cloud. Yeah. So the backside, you can see my backside. I mean, yeah, these are all, you know, images, human images, but, but the point is that we can't see his face. If I, give you, if I give you a real picture of myself, you're not going to be able to take it. So I'm going to give you a farthest glimpse. Uh, and my backside means just the, you know, the less glorious part of me. Well, but... No, no. Yeah, I mean, you know, when when uh, God leaves the temple and God comes into the inhabits the temple in the day of Solomon, for instance, when he builds the temple, that's the glory cloud. It's the spirit cloud. It's you know, back then they didn't distinguish between the two, but but now it's clear 
You know, even, for instance, in the Mount of Transfiguration, all these little stories where you have all three persons of the Trinity there. You have Jesus going up on the mountain, and then a cloud descends upon them, and God speaks, this is my son. So you have the Father speaking to his son. You have the, the Holy Spirit enveloping the whole thing. And you have Jesus being spoken to. So, but the, that glory cloud, when you, you know, from the New Testament, is definitely the Spirit, not even in the creation. God created the heavens and the earth, and the, the the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. It doesn't say, um, and you know, that's the word is bird language. It's you know. Like a bird hovers. That's the spirit that came down upon Jesus. Even in the language of the New Testament, it's not, it's not always linguistically, you know, the way they refer to talking to Jesus doesn't necessarily make those distinctions between talking to Jesus and God the Father all the time. No. So, no. you know, especially in the Old Testament, it, it said, you know, God shows back. And, you know, it's equally... You know, not, they wouldn't make a distinction between God the Father and God the Spirit, especially in that context. Even in the New Testament, they might not say. Right. But um, the New Testament does provide so much more yeah. context, That's right. information, and revelation yep. that gives us the tools to do what we're talking about right now. I couldn't agree more. Very well said. Okay, so where are we? Spirit? What, which one did we just do? I can't remember. Who was the one who shared? The Father. The Father, so the Son. So Jesus, the Son. We have only a couple more minutes, so we'll finish the Son and the Spirit, and then we'll be done. He's physical. Okay. Physical. Um, there, obviously, you know, God is not physical, but He created everything physical. And therefore, he has physical power to create, to change, to do a miracle. Um, And when Christ came, even though his physicality was human, it does show us that God is not so separated from the physicality of the world, the material world, that, you know, he can't have anything to do with it. He is he is so wrapped up no, that's not a good way to say it. He is, he is willingly connects himself to the physical world that he could become part of it in a sense and not lose his divinity. That is one of the great... In fact, um, C.S. Lewis has a book called The Grand Miracle or The Great Miracle, and it's all about the Incarnation. That's really the biggest miracle of all, is because that God, the Spirit, can, can become human, the flesh. Okay, Holy Spirit, last one. Renewal, refresher. Okay, renewal and refreshment. He is the one who is 
uh, making things new and not just at work, not just teaching. I mean, you can have a teacher, a wonderful teacher, but still they're just teaching. But the Spirit actually has the ability to take things and make them new and reform and change and transform. And that, that is, uh, he's the one. And it's very subtle. The Spirit's work is the one that gets the least noticed, probably. And, uh, but we're, you know, when we're, when we get to heaven, we'll see ways that he was at work in us that we didn't realize at the time. And we're, and be, you know, full of praise because, yeah, George? We understand that God is Trinitarian, and I wonder, um, in a in a church that it has that is more liturgical, it's very clear in their worship service that they worship the Trinity. When a person comes to this church and, and goes through the worship service, is it possible that they? Could go through the service and not understand we worship the Trinity. I suppose on a given Sunday, that's possible. I don't think that you could do that a long time. Right. Yeah, and it, it's probably not a good thing that it's possible. And there are times in the past where it's a lot more possible, I think. Um, but uh, I do think this is something that the church is responsible to keep before everyone's faces, you know. Constantly be putting this out there. But, liturgical churches, you know, they have their weaknesses too. They, there's so many people that are coming and, and there's no God at all in what they're doing. It's, as you know, you know there's, uh, there's no way that structurally you can eliminate all the, the pitfalls. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good time we've had this morning. We pray that you would help us in our lives to be more conscious of the Trinity and the role that each of the members of the Godhead play in our lives and to more deeply and richly appreciate all that you do for us thereby. Now prepare us to come into your presence to celebrate our Lord Jesus together. We pray in his name. Amen.